Hey, thank you, Malama. Malama, while you're there, I wanted to make sure that people didn't think I was saying your name wrong. Absolutely not. No, you are saying it perfectly correct, Karen. And I love it when you say Malama too, by the way. So Marama, of course, is, is the name I, also, I grew up with, but it's equally correct to say Malama. That's my Tuvaluan name. So please continue to say it. I love it when you do. I will. Malama. <laughs> thank you, Malama. Thank you, Karen. She'll be back at half past four. And thank you for your texts, everyone. If you'd like to get in touch... 2101 is the text number and standard text charges apply. We love to hear from you of course and I'll read out as many as I can. Uh, Thanks in advance for sending them. If I don't get to read them on air it's only time restraints. We do read them all and it is really great to get your thoughts so 2101. Uh, This person texts to say, when I was a kid in the late 70s early 80s, a possum came down our chimney. It was December, there were presents in a tree and the soot damage and claw marks on furniture, curtains and carpet made the paper about the wrong Santa coming early. And regarding the echidna, hi Karen, echidna are monotremes, non-placental egg-laying mammals like the platypus. That's from Paul. Did you know that, Ellie? No. In fact, I, would, I didn't even know how to say echidna when I saw the, saw the word. That's how useless I am. I had to look it up, I have to say. I knew, that spiny thing, I'd seen pictures of it, but they're not something we see sort of trotting around New Zealand, are they? <laughs> not a lot, no. And Patrick, Smelly, there's a question for you. Can you please ask Patrick if the Herald's calculations are correct? KiwiSaver fund managers will charge New Zealand savers over a trillion dollars in fees by 2070. Is this correct? Scotty wants to know that. Do you have the answer off the top of your head? I don't have an answer off the top of my head, but I must say a trillion dollars sounds like a, a little bit high. <laughs> well, the New Zealand the whole New Zealand economy is only about $300 billion a year at the moment. Uh, so that's another 50 years' worth of... Well, hang on, what are we now? Yeah, 50 years' worth of, of fees. It would be, be a sizable sum. But uh, whether it's a trillion dollars, uh, I don't know. Sorry to throw Sorry. that at you without any prep. <laughs> it's prep in school as well. That's what's going on right at the moment because alarm bells are ringing at secondary schools. High numbers of students failing a trial of NCEA literacy and numeracy tests. For example, year 10 students at at least one school failed the writing test and at others, two-thirds to a half failed it. So let's get to the bottom of it. Uh, on the line now we have Greg Pierce, Principal of Oriwa College and President of Auckland Secondary Principal. Association. Kia ora, good afternoon Greg. Uh, kia ora, Marae Shall we clarify for a start that these were mock exams for tests that will be compulsory in 2024? Yes, so at the moment a number of schools are piloting uh, these literacy and numeracy co-requisites which from at this stage from 2024 will be will be required in order to get your MCA level 1 qualification. So a small number of schools uh, are piloting them this year and for next year because they have already been delayed for one year. So just testing them out. And for those of who, for those who get a little bit um, confused about year 10, that's the old fourth yeah. form. So it was year Correct. 10, yeah. the old fourth form, and they sat year 11, the fifth form and NCEA year exams. They wouldn't have really have stood a chance, would they? It's a year too soon. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that is uh, one question which uh, immediately comes to mind. Uh, you know, I was not a pilot with 11s. And also considering, you know, in reality, all students at all year levels have had just on three years of some level of disruption to their learning as well. Uh, it's sort of been set up to failure, I suspect, in my opinion. Do you think it's is it the tests or is it the the students? You mentioned some of the difficulties, but are the tests too hard? 
Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's a combination of both factors. I think, I mean, anecdotally, talking to principals of primary schools, intermediate schools and secondary schools, they're all seeing students come in at below what was pre-COVID norms in terms of literacy and also socialisation, uh, can I add in, as well. So I don't think we can underestimate those effects. Uh, but also, yeah, at, um, at years 9 and 10, it's it's too much of an ask uh, to put these tests in, which seem to be quite theoretical and quite uh, rich literacy-wise and not overly contextual or in line with the, the students' understanding uh, in reality, yeah. Why would that be? Who Who is formulating the questions? Well... Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. So there's been a uh, a professional group working on developing these literacy and numeracy uh, standards, and yeah, unfortunately they've been working uh, with, with with a number of groups and consultation process. But in terms of rolling out these assessments, for example, I was talking to a principal this morning of a school that piloted it with uh, the whole year ten group, and uh, a couple of facts. You know, obviously it's digital, it's online, so some students aren't used to that, uh, setting a formal assessment uh, digitally, and uh, there's a whole question mark there about understanding and processing and so forth. Uh, and will, that, will, also, they do know, that, that, will they do that in 2024? Yeah. Will, that, will it be online? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. no, it's all, on, it's all online and all uh, externally assessed. So the principal mm-hmm. I was actually talking to, bizarrely, still has not seen the assessment, apart from looking over a student's shoulder while they were doing it. They, so principals haven't had access, and seeing the leadership teams and HODs, heads of department, haven't had access to these assessments. It's just within these pilot schools, and the pilot schools haven't actually specifically seen the assessment, just the students who are failing them in quite significant numbers. And... This is going to have a, quite a demoralising effect, isn't it? I mean, they're going to be talking. That was real hard. I didn't pass. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we all know, you know, students in years 9 and 10 are still developing in a, in a range of ways. And uh, I heard Minister Tanetti say this morning, I think, you know, it's motivational if you and develops resilience if you try something and fail a few times, then eventually get it. Uh, from my experience with years nine, 9 and 10 students, uh, it's not overly motivational if they do keep on failing. They'll just give up. Uh, there'd only be a small number of students that would really persevere. So, yeah. And I, can you know, what's can I ask a question on... If they're not ready, yeah. Go ahead, Ellie. I just wanted to ask a question. And look, forgive me if this makes me sound like a smartass, but who yep. comes up with this? I mean, you, you and Karen in the conversation that you've had now have both yep. raised quite intelligent concerns about some pretty common sense stuff. At what point yep. will someone actually go, hang on a minute, which bit of this did we get right and why have we got so yep. much of this wrong? Yeah, I mean, it's really frustrating. Uh, you know, there are a number of secondary school principal associations around the country with similar concerns. Uh, I know that for a fact. And we will be communicating again with the ministry and the ministers. But, I mean, for example, you know, there's been a group working on developing these standards. And at the same time, there's been a group working on a common practice model, which is a range of literacy and numeracy strategies for early age students right up until secondary school. Uh, but they haven't been working together. And uh, we've just been told about the common practice model and what it may, might 
entail. But, you know, that, that takes time. You can't expect that to be aligned within one year and then suddenly the following year everyone's up to date. It's, it's so have we got bureaucrats putting this stuff together? Is it is it people like yourself that should be doing this and it shouldn't be uh, people who sit at desks? Uh, I suspect the balance isn't quite right. Uh, politically correct answer there, I suspect. Uh, <laughs> and also, I mean, the reality is obviously the levels of literacy and numeracy for a variety of reasons you know, have been questioned by employers and tertiary institutions, and, and quite rightly so. Uh, so I guess there's political pressure to quickly come up with a, you know, addressing the problem and, and putting in a solution, but it's not a solution. It's a, it's an assessment, which, you know, forgive mm-hmm. me, but I think someone quite intelligent told me uh, a while ago that, uh, you know, assessment comes from a, a kesora in, in Latin, which means to work alongside. It's not... Assessments aren't to catch students out. They should be evaluating what they've been learning in the classroom for a number of years. Well, maybe, maybe it's a, a, a mock uh, exam trial for the ministry. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, from our perspective, we'll, as I say, we'll be in communication to uh, asking for another delay in the process because it's, it's not going to be effective. Uh, we can roll it out, but it's the preparation and the systematic alignment with you know the common practice model of strategies of numeracy and literacy uh, they need to be aligned and put in place in primary and intermediate schools as well at the same time. So, Greg, just quickly, how did your school do? Uh, we weren't involved. So oh, you weren't involved at all, a right? La- no, a large number of schools uh, wanted to be involved because obviously they wanted to get a get a look at what's what's in place. Uh, but it's only a, you know, a relatively small number of schools that are involved in, in the pilot. And as I said, you know, I talked to that principal this morning. Still hasn't actually seen specifically the assessment, no access to that. So we've got the general framework, but uh, what the actual assessment was, yeah, we haven't got access to that. So it's very frustrating. Thank you very much, Greg. I just feel, I know we've got to move on, but uh, this text is really interesting. So interesting that interviewer and guests immediately spring to conclusion that experts and tests are wrong and that not that the kids have been poorly taught and their achievement is genuinely lower than it should be. Quick answer to that? Well, there may be a, an aspect of that that is true, uh, but we're not going to solve that problem unless we align our, our practice models in terms of literacy and numeracy from years one through to year, year 11. And just, actually, uh, can I just yep. jump in there too? I, th- yep. I, I, that makes me really angry, that text, um, because it's incredibly defensive where there shouldn't be that kind of reaction here. It's clear from, from what Greg's saying that there are very basic, simple, common sense things, even just communication, that has a, has yep. a, haven't been done right. So I think it, it's very fair to assume that actually this is a, a systems issue and not necessarily an intelligence or a kids issue. So yeah, well, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a complex because it's a number of factors, as we've yeah, as we've stated. So, yeah, but it needs time to align and get that, prepared before we assess. Thank you, Greg, and thanks, Ellie. Okay. Thank Sorry, you. I get really wound up about that. I, I mean, can it tell. Just, well, it may, you know, I'm just sick of bureaucracy and sort of stuff that's, that's common sense that should be simple to do. Why do we make everything so hard? It's 19 past four. You can answer that if you like via text 2101, whether you agree or disagree. 19 past four on the panel. And uh, we're now going to talk about a subject that Patrick might be interested in. Data from Inland Revenue suggests that many property investments are running at a loss and leaving investors to rely on capital gains. 
In recent years, about a third of owners lost money on their rental properties, and those that did make a profit, they gained about $10,000 on average. Uh, tax consultant Terry Bocher collected these figures, and he's with us on the line. Good afternoon, Terry. Kia ora, Karen. Explain what the big change has been for those with rental properties as regards taxation, the changes that came in at the end of last year. Just to remind us. Right, several things happened. Um, we've had loss ring fencing in place for a couple of years, which means that if you have a loss, it you can no longer um, offset it against your other income. And that's been in place for three years now. Um, then the other key thing that happened with effect from 1st of October last year is that interest deductions on rental investment properties are restricted. 25% of that amount is treated as non-deductible unless you qualify for what we call a new build exemption. Quite a bit of change here. So your main concern is what this is doing to house prices. Is that accurate? No, no. I, I'm curious about a number of things for a long time. Um, alongside um, uh, Professor Susan St. John, we've been looking at alternative means of taxing capital and housing because it's a real logjam in our system and distortions in our tax system arise because we don't tax capital evenly. There are a whole pile of different uh, taxing approaches that are taken. And in housing, we've seen was one very became very tax preferred beginning at the start of the 90s because of changes that were made elsewhere in the tax system. And as we've seen, there's been a surge in house prices. What what I was looking at is we're seeing a massive investment into residential property housing. It's driven by logical um, logic in that there's been good returns in capital and it's been very highly tax preferred, as I mentioned. But when you look at the the amount that's invested in there and the returns, you've got to sit back and think, well, why are people investing so much in there? We're talking about, according to the Reserve Bank, about $369 billion in residential investment property as of 31st of March 2021. But the taxable return on that, according to the figures given to me by Inland Revenue, is um, $1.42 billion. So that's a huge discrepancy, basically a 0.4% return. Why is that? Why would you invest so much capital for what is such a poor return? And from what I can gather, you want landlords to feel guilty about making a profit. No, I don't. Because uh, that, that's... Um, what has been really interesting when you do talk about this is... I've used the phrase, and I've seen elsewhere talked about in other jurisdictions, the phrase has popped up, but we're creating a land of gentry. And that has sort of great connotations about how we perceive ourselves as New Zealanders, but that's the process that's developing here. If you are, the level of people who are in housing, owner occupiers, is dropping quite dramatically. And if you are now in a situation to reach now because of house prices, if you don't have parents that can help you or grandparents that can help you into a house, you're pretty much out of the market for good. You're, you're doomed to renting. And, and the OECD has picked up on this as a concern. Two things are happening. It's creating, generating greater inequality, but it's also meaning a greater diversion of resources, potential scarce capital to um, housing rather than into productive enterprises. 
Well, Auckland Property Investors Association President Kristen Sutherland um, says that people who are in property investment, landlords, they're not relying on capital gains from selling and that most rentals were in fact profitable, profitable uh, even with that 10k figure. So they're sticking to it. Well, I'm well, sure she that, would say that. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Patrick. You took the words right out of my mouth there. Uh, thank you, Christine Keeler, too. Um, yes, she would say that. I mean, even if you say, right, $10,000, that sounds like a good number. But then you say, well, how much is that property worth? Half a million dollars. That's, that's not a great return. It's, uh, the issue still comes back to you. It's, it's, if if investment it depends on your return. But if you're relying on a capital return, what happens if the market goes against you? Your, your, the, basis for your, the basis for your investment is, frankly, stuffed at that point. Patrick, to your knowledge, are landlords getting out of the business? Are they selling up? Well, look, I think there's been a bit of change in, in that market, um, you know, anecdotally. Um, but I think also as house prices have been, have been coming down, uh, there has been a bit of in, uh, added interest from investors starting to look at, okay, where's, may not be at the bottom now, but it, but uh, maybe it's a bit, a bit of opportunity starting to arise in parts of the country where house prices have come back quite a bit. I suppose the thing that strikes me is when you say that 0.4% return on capital, uh, which you might earn from a from owning a rental property, it's it, that to me is just, it's the urban version of uh, the entire farming economy uh, for most of the time. So farmers, generally speaking, make an appallingly poor return on capital because they expect the price of, their, of the value of their land to be so much greater by the time they leave the land. It's exactly the same model. You don't make a lot of money uh, year by year based on the actual value, capital value of the asset employed, but you do expect the capital value of that asset to rise over time and therefore to make you money when you get out. Uh, to if you stay there not... for, for a while, obviously, with yeah, the bright um, line to test. Su- to, to suggest that, that anybody goes into residential property uh, in order to make annual profits as a landlord as their primary uh, source, uh, you know, as the primary reason for doing it is, is, is desperately naive, it seems to me, unless you're Kayanga Aura, because that's what you're paid to do. Terry, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Kia ora. Thank you. Tax consultant Terry Belcher. It's 26 minutes past four. And when you imagine the ultimate job, like your dream job, what is it for you when you're thinking about it? Maybe it's, it might be in computers, it could be finance, it could be farming, it could be healthcare, it might even be in something like flowers. Or it could be absolutely none of the above because one Japanese man, he's found the ultimate dream job. He used to work in publishing and he got into a bit of trouble for doing nothing. So now he officially does nothing and he gets paid for it. So he rents himself out, basically. It's nothing, none of his jobs are uh, sexual. He's waved people off at trains because they wanted, to, wanted them to farewell them. They wanted him to farewell them. He's accompanied people out who didn't want anyone chatting to them. They just wanted someone to be there. All he had to do was go out with them. He's played on a seesaw with another person. And uh, he has so many jobs, he's busy all the time, so he really isn't doing nothing. He, he reckons that people don't have to be useful in any specific way, so he does SFA, basically. <laughs> so, uh, Amy, what do you reckon? Money for old rope? Amy, Who, me? Do, yeah, do you think that's Ellie. money for... Ellie, sorry, money yeah, for no, old rope? Yeah, no, that's all right. No, I thought there were four of us in this for a minute. Yes, um, no, Ellie, Amy. 
well, I think not it's a change of. I can't think of anything worse than doing nothing, um, and it is really tiring doing nothing. I'm exhausted after going on holiday and lying around doing nothing, actually, and sleeping a lot. Um, and I'd hate doing that. Imagine having to talk and be around and. Nah, it wouldn't be my cup of tea at all. I, I can't think of anything worse. Um, my ideal job would probably be something that involved uh, reviewing Eggs Benedict around the country and just seeing where the best <laughs> Eggs Benedict was. I'd be happy with that. What would your ideal job be, Patrick? My ideal job? Yeah. Uh, my ideal job would be to be a highly paid travel correspondent. Oh, that's just good. Checking out hotels, uh, strange parts of the world uh, at somebody else's expense. Yeah, no, I'd rather do That's that. That's kind of doing nothing, but you have to do the writing. It's sort of doing nothing. Yes, sort of. Yeah, but, the, but I mean, this guy's got, has to, he's got to have a few life skills. I mean, it's not yeah. completely unskilled. If you're waving off a train, you know, he's got to be able to wave. Technically <laughs> uh, speaking, that's not doing nothing at all. That's waving. And, and Ali, he doesn't actually have to um, chat. They don't want him to chat. You know, no, but you've still got to look interested, don't you? And I mean, no. Oh, no, really? No. He's just there. Imagine that. Imagine yeah. if you were chatty by nature and you had to be silent. That would actually oh. be like be doing something, wouldn't it? He's doing yeah. something right because yeah. he's got nearly a quarter of a million followers on Twitter. That's yeah. a lot people of people. Have got, people have got too much time on their hands. This sort of thing just interests people because it's so bizarre. Um, but it's a great, it might be a great way forward for somebody looking for a job. He charges 10,000, well, not a job. He, he charges 10,000 yen, which is about 116 New Zealand dollars per booking. And he, he has several bookings a day. And how do, how do people get them? Just through his Instagram or through his, through his, through his social media? Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they don't have to do anything, apparently. Oh. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I suppose you've got your ideal job, have you, Karen? I have, yep, at the moment. Just, well, I, I, I like that, several things. I saw that online today. So you're going to be doing the evenings now? I am. I'm going to be That's doing awesome. nights Yay, uh, from October. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah very, very excited to be doing that. Um, mm. We start, I think, on the 4th of October. Awesome. But, well, you'll, you'll not be doing nothing then. Two negatives.